Romans 12, verse 1 has nothing to do with mostly what I'm reading, but I'm going to read it to you anyways. Um, 12, verse 1 in the Message Bible spoke to me, and I want to read it to you. It says, so here's what I want you to do, God helping you. Take your everyday, ordinary life, you're sleeping, you're eating, you're going to work, you're walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for him. Don't become so well-adjusted to the culture of your world that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, rather, fix your attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out. Readily recognize what he wants from you and quickly respond to it, unlike the culture around you, always dragging you down to its level of immaturity. God brings the best out of you, and it develops well-informed, mature Christians. Amen? It's a really, it has to do partially with what I'm going to be discussing tonight. Anybody ever heard of the Beatitudes? The Beatitudes. So what are the, the Beatitudes? Anybody know? The Beatitudes. Turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5 is the single most amazing sermon that was ever given, and it was given by Jesus himself. Amen? In the, this is going to be a really, really, really structured, structured Bible study, so if you're taking notes, I hope you can keep up, but um, a lot of information, amen? In the second year of Jesus' ministry on earth, he walked up a hill on the northeast shore of the Sea of Galilee, and he began to teach his disciples, that's what we read in Matthew 5, chapter, one, um, chapter 5, verses 1 through 2, and it goes all the way on, all the way to the end of chapter 8, I believe. It was what we were teaching from last week, when it even says, this was part of the sermon he gave where seek ye first the kingdom of God and all that good stuff. And it goes on to talk about many more things. And um, he went up this hill and began to teach his disciples. Moses went up a hill to receive the law. Jesus ascended the hill to actually explain the law. Amen. As was the custom of the Jewish rabbis, Jesus sat down. It says it also in Luke chapter 4 verse 20 to teach. It was a, the custom of the Jews to their rabbis, their teachers, was just sit down on the side of a hill and teach. It was amazing that the sanctuary for the greatest sermon that ever took place in history was the side of a hill, a slope that probably had no meaning before that, but yet when you put it into perspective now, it was the single greatest moment of, of just preaching right then and there where the Son of God actually came and he began to explain the kingdom of heaven. You ever, you ever sat there and had some questions about God, some questions and things? This is, this is where he did it at. Amen? Yeah. Mm-hmm. If you look throughout the scriptures, you're going to find throughout the scriptures where you even have Abraham on Mount Moriah, you have Noah on Mount Ararat, you have all these mountaintop experiences, even where Gideon was founded on the bottom of a mountain in the cave, and all these things, you're always going to see this, it's, it's really, it's almost symbolic of climbing that mountain, of getting to God, amen? So here he is, and he is teaching away, and he begins a sermon that is known as the Beatitudes, that's what I was talking about. It's from there. It was, no, it's, it's not an earthquake. It's a washer. He, he gave a sermon that would become to be known as the Beatitudes. Amen. Um, currently, the mountain is topped by a Roman Catholic chapel that was uh, built up by, by Benito Mussolini. Amen. 
and as he went forward and, and through the years, it has different names, different things. Right now, it's currently known as the Mountain of Beatitudes. Amen. This teaching is really, really, really in-depth because the teaching Jesus gave is, is really miscommunicated sometimes. It's really misperceived sometimes. Um, anybody ever heard of dis, dis, uh, dispensation? What's dispensation? Carmen, explain it to the people. Exactly. So dispensationalism is the thought that, and it's not, it's not always correct, but sometimes it is correct. It's one of those weird teachings. But dispensa- dispensationalists, who are people who believe in dispensationalism, FYI, is that suppose um, God dealt with them for X amount of years with bulls and goats where they had to sacrifice. And then now God deals with the fact that it's now we're saved by grace. And and then now God's dealing with the Pentecostal movement. And then God deals with the Baptist movement. And they believe that God operates in different time spans. And they believe that, which is it's wrong, I'm telling you right now, they believe that this the Beatitudes is for a future time. Uh, the Seventh-day Adventists turned this into an extension of the Ten Commandments, which is false. Um, many Christians today, we try and compare and contrast the Ten Commandments by the Beatitudes. And even some Christians today turn it into one of those shalls and shall nots and, and what you should and should not do. Does anybody besides Carmen yet remember what the Beatitudes are? Once I read it, you're going to be like, oh. Because, you know, you got to have those proper names for things. The sermon contains um, strong meat for mature Christians, and it will challenge you as long as you live as a Christian. Amen. In the first century, Judea, which is where this took place, was filled with many problems. The land was occupied by the um, tyrannical Roman government. It was a world of absolute rulers and antithesis of democracy. It was a lot of persecution of the church. Um, the people were nothing more than slaves for the Roman Empire. Taxes consumed one-third of their total income. And r- the Bible says in Luke chapter tw- 10 that racial prejudice was so prevalent in this sector of the, of the world that people didn't even know who their neighbors were. Now, if you think about it, it's really explaining almost what we're looking at now with all the taxes, with all the things we're going through, with, with the way the government's cracking down on just crazy things and, and the things that we don't even see behind the scenes that are going on. And, and how many of you really actually know all your neighbors and stuff like that? And, and most of us, we just don't. And it's, it's actually, whether we see it or not, it may seem extreme, it's a sign of the times. And there was f- three different groups of, of different Jews and people who dealt with this a certain way. One of them was called the Zealots. Um, if you don't know who the Zealots were, they were the terrorist group of the time. They were like the IRA, the, um, the Irish people who are, think they're fighting for Ireland's better good and they're bombing people and doing things like that. Um, so what's his, I can't remember this guy's name now. What's his name? Barabbas was a Zealot. When he was exchanged for Jesus, instead of releasing Jesus, they released Barabbas. And Barabbas was, was actually a Zealot. And it was a terrorist group. And they believed in military might and nothing else. The Sadducees... Um, their doctrine was to, um, they could survive by compromising with the world. Be cautious and negotiate the best bargain you can with the Roman Empire. Where the Pharisees were, live holy or you're going to die. So that's the easiest way to do it. In the midst of all this, this Galilean carpenter climbed the hills and walked through the valley of Judea. He knew the people and had compassion on their miserable situation. His uh, sermon was delivered in the second year of his ministry and he had already had a couple altercations with the Pharisees. He rejected the Zealots' doctrine, the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And he began to preach a, a message that had never been preached before, which was genuine repentance. 
consider how um, the lexicons, which is the, um, the definition, uh, the, the, the dictionaries of the Christian world, how they look at the word repent. It means to change one's mind and purpose, have a change of heart, turn from one's sins, or change their ways. To change any or all of the elements composing your life, your attitude, your thoughts, your behaviors concerning the demands of God's for right for living. So if you think about it, how many of you have ever said, I've, I've repented from something? What it really means is you changed your thoughts, your behaviors, everything about it. You change much more than just that one sin. You change how you think about it, how you perceive it, God bless you, how you look at it, and a bunch of different things. So they had never, ever heard this before. God bless you. Gee, I, you are such a blessing hog. So they had never truly heard a, a <laughs> wow. They had never truly heard a message of repentance. Just say that, say repentance. So there were some things. I just wanted to point those things out to you, amen? This Sermon on the Mount was not a, a feel-good sermon. It was a radical sermon. This sermon that he gave them was a pound-them-to-the-ground type of sermon. It was, wasn't fire and brimstone, but it wasn't one of those, I'm just going to go and get myself and make myself feel so much better. It was nothing about that. When he preached this sermon, uh, the Beatitudes, he really went so in-depth with some things that it would crush some people. Amen? Um, this sermon is not it, it has a tendency to take a verse. People have a tendency to take a verse from this and isolate it. And you, when it comes to the sermon, you can't do that. Amen? So before you guys go crazy, I'm just going to go right into the actual first one. We'll be on this for a few weeks. Amen? The Beatitudes. Uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. <clears throat> I need a reader. Uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. Mike. Just verse 3. That was a rookie mistake, but he said blessed. It's blessed for this time, for this annunciation. It's all right. This one says, uh, uh, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is the sermon of the Beatitudes. Blessed are this, blessed are them, blessed are this. Is, now you got to do that. Oh, we're thinking about this. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Somebody explain this verse to me. Carmen? Anybody else want to help her out? You guys are sitting, so I'm going to sit too. I feel left out. Lori, you have so much breath in you. According to Jesus, true happiness is related to some sort of poverty. Now, Jesus is not speaking about materialistic poverty. 
uh, many of the, um, the Catholic commentators, and if you don't, many of you probably don't read commentaries, which I do, when you study the Word of God as a, as a, and trying to teach it, you study commentaries, which is what people hundreds of years over the past couple hundred years have thought about that scripture. And some of them are like Matthew Henry, uh, K. Barnes, and they have different amazing men of God who write these like, they can write maybe a whole book off of one verse in the Bible. And they'll break down every little linguistic thing. A lot of the Catholic commentators are fond of this interpretation to mean it that it's material poverty. But material poverty never guarantees you heaven. If Jesus was teaching the innate blessedness of material poverty, then the task of Christians would be to help make everyone, including themselves, penniless. That's not what God wants. That's not exactly, what, that's not at all what God wants. Somebody said, mm-mm. Um, Mike's like, uh-uh, heard a deep one there. The only prayer in the book of Proverbs that's ever prayed is that Agur, when he asked God to give him neither poverty nor riches. The Apostle Paul knew both poverty and riches. He says that in Philippians 4, verse 11 and 13. Being poor in spirit does not mean being poor-spirited either. Anybody know what it means to be poor-spirited? You lack drive, you lack enthusiasm, you, you lack that luster for life. That, 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 that joy that gets you going, no motivation to accomplish anything. Anybody ever feel like that sometimes? You're poor-spirited that day. That's something you can't get caught in. He's not telling you to be poor-spirited. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So he was concerned with the poverty of their spirit, a, a frame of mind. The Beatitudes were given in a very def, um, definite order, for they are in a picture of a man turning to God. When you read this, um, if you could put up verse uh, 4 for me. It says, blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Verse 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Next one. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. If you read it, the first one it starts, it's a picture of someone turning their life to God. Someone starting over, starting fresh. Blessed are the poor in spirit, because they're the ones who are going to get the kingdom of heaven. So to be poor in spirit, it means to be humble. A humble politician is seldom elected to higher office because most people say that he lacks personality. The apostle Paul placed no confidence in himself. He made Christ the focus of his life's work. Paul, uh, in, by many standards, would not be accepted by many congregations today as a pastor. But yet Paul was, uh, he called himself a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was one of the most educated people that the Bible, uh, whoever wrote the Bible, part of it. He was one of the most educated, and yet he didn't find himself to be, you know, so outgoing and so arrogant. He says to be poor in spirit. Pride can cause you not to be poor in spirit. What are the, some things that can cause you not to be poor in spirit? Jealousy. Somebody help me here. Envy. Huh? Mm -hmm. Anybody else? Come on, help me out here. Unforgiveness, yes. Selfishness, absolutely, Elias. B bitterness, you have bitterness? Where'd that come from? I'm just kidding. <laughs> Those are things that would not allow you. The Beatitudes begins with the emptying of oneself. This is the only one that, that, that really speaks of you being empty. The rest of them talk about you being filled. So I heard something last night that blew, that was really just took me for a spin. I was watching Jesse Duplantis. It was like 3 in the morning. I couldn't sleep, and I turned on TBN. I never watched TBN. And, um, yeah, I can't stand it. 
I really just don't like it. But I turned it on, and it was Jesse Duplantis, and I love Jesse Duplantis. If you have never heard him, you need to look this man up. He is hysterical, and he was talking about, um, he was just talking about the lady who she had, um, the, her, the, the, her husband died. They wanted to take the debts away, uh, put, take the kids away because of her debt and the, ho the whole thing with the oil. The prophet told her, go out and get all the vessels you can and blah, blah, blah. And she starts pouring the oil. And he began to say, how did the, how did the oil know when to stop pouring? Does anybody know? Huh? No. So how did the oil know to stop? Everybody extend your hands towards Carmen right now. He began, he began to say some things that are really profound. He said, God knows when to stop giving to you when you have nothing, nowhere else to put into. Her miracle was only limited by how much room she made for it, by how much provision she made for it. And he began to go off and he preached a whole message called make no provision for failure. Don't make no preparation in case you mess up, in case there is no plan B, it's just plan A. And he preached a message that I was in my bed and I couldn't, I was too tired to get up. I'd just be like, amen. <laughs> you know how when you hear something really good, you're just like, wow. I don't know about y'all. I think I told y'all before, when I hear really good preaching, it makes you want to run, like just run. So I started listening to it while I was working on the treadmill. Yeah, so I just running. When, he, when I hear T.D. Jake say something real good, just faster. There you go. That was good. Y'all tried today, but that's all right. The Apostle Paul lacked no confidence in himself. He made Christ the focus of his life and his work. Um, being poor in spirit is not a suppression of your personality. You hear me? You don't have to be ashamed of your personal abilities, the money you have. The, the, the money you've worked for, the car you drive, or the house you live in. While we are not to flaunt our wealth, there is nothing wrong with being wealthy, rich, or having money. Amen? Great characters of the Old Testament were all poor in spirit. Gideon, Moses, Solomon. But both Moses um, and Solomon ended up being some type of rich. Solomon was one of the richest men who ever lived. Moses had everything he wanted at his disposal, and Gideon became the leader of Israel. But they were all poor in spirit. Doesn't mean they were poor, though. Amen? The Pharisees and the tax collectors, uh, that, that story in Luke chapter 18, the poor, deluded Pharisee left the temple uh, dreaming that he had earned his eternal salvation. He totally forgot that the tithes he prided himself on giving were merely tithes on what God had blessed him with in the first place. You realize that when you bring tithes, you're only bringing God back what he already gave you in the first place? He seems to think that God was lucky to have him on his side. Here is a man who was proud in spirit and had no sense of his utter worthlessness before God. The tax collector, on the other hand, was humble, contrite, and heartbroken. His only hope was to throw himself on the mercy of God. The Pharisee thought he needed nothing and that it was exactly what he got. The tax collector saw his need for mercy and God gave it to him. The Apostle Peter, if you read the Bible, um, which is a good thing to do, was an aggressive, assertive, confident, confrontational, and almost downright belligerent person. If you read the scripture, Peter was always in the midst of something, in the mix about something. If you came with me down to um, New Haven that day, that, that Thursday I preached, I preached a message. Uh, he, Peter was a thug. Peter was truly, he was a thug. You got to think about it. He carried a knife with him and he chopped that guy's ear off in the Garden of Gethsemane. 
he um, actually yoked up Jesus and was like, you're not going to die. Who are you talking about? You're crazy. We're not going to let nothing happen to you. Not as I'm here. He was like west side all day, all that kind of stuff. He was like, had his own little clique, I guess. Peter was not your average guy. He was a rough and tumble kind of guy. That's who he was. But yet the Bible describes him as being poor in spirit. When he saw Jesus, he, decry, he cried out, depart from men, for I am a sinful man. He knew who he was. He was poor in his spirit, although in his character he was a large person. Amen? So what I'm saying to you is just because you're loud and outgoing. Ivan, you caught that? Just because you have a big personality doesn't mean that you're not poor in spirit. Just because I have a big personality doesn't mean I'm not poor in spirit. Many people might translate my, my character as saying he's arrogant, he's proudful, he's this, he's that. No, not at all. I'm blessed. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's why I know the kingdom of heaven is mine. It, the, the, the Beatitudes begins all about following God's will. If you read from chapter 5 all the way to chapter 8, it's about what God desires for you to do and what he desires for you not to do. Amen? So, don't think that because you have a big, per don't think you have to walk around with your head down all humble. I'm humble, I'm humble, I'm humble. No. You can be loud, crazy, have fun, and be yourself, but be poor in your spirit. The apostle Peter was an aggressive person. The apostle Paul was a man of great power and education. Many people don't understand the apostle Paul, before he became Paul, his name was Saul, and he was a very powerful Pharisee. He was somebody who was very well known. He was like an Al Sharpton, if not higher than that of our time. You know how Al Sharpton, everybody knows him, and in some communities he holds a lot of power, a lot of pull. You think of some of these reverends who, who have a lot of pull in the country. He was, he, was, he was up there. He knew what he was doing. He was very educated. He, he grew up in a city that was all about just education. This man was smart. He could have taken pride in his pedigree, his education at the feet of uh, Gamaliel of his Romans or his Roman citizenship. He was a Roman citizen. Not many Jews had Roman citizenship. You have to understand this about this time of the, um, that they lived in. However, after seeing God, all that he once valued became lost for Christ. And he counted it as rubbish, he said in Philippians 3, 7 and 8. He considered himself to be chief of sinners. And he says that of himself in 1 Timothy 1.15. So now you're talking about this guy who wrote a better part of the entire New Testament. And he, he's describing himself as the chief of sinners. He is the same, uh, one, the, the same disciple who said, the things I should do, I don't do. But the things that I don't want to do, I do. And so he began to ponder how he doesn't understand what he's doing. Now, come on. Let's be honest. I'm going to re-say this again. I'm going to say this again. The things I do, I don't want to do. And the things I don't want to do, I do. How many of you fall into that category? You are just like Paul. Paul's no greater, no less than you. That's it. Nobody in this room is worse than anybody. We have to remain poor in spirit, poor in the sense of, Minister Carmen put it perfectly, humble in your spirit, meek in your spirit, amen? Complete absence of pride and self-reliance is what is the best definition of being poor in spirit. If you're taking notes, you can write down 1 Corinthians. As a matter of fact, put that up for me, 1 Corinthians 3.18. King James, I don't care what it is. Also, you can put in your notes, Jeremiah 10, 23, 1 Corinthians, I'm sorry. 
Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you seemeth to be wise in this world, let him become a fool that he may be wise. He's telling you, don't care how smart you think you are. Sometimes you got to be dumb to be smart. Think less of yourself. The Bible says in Romans, I believe it's chapter 12 or 13, I can't remember right now. If any of you think higher than yourselves, then you are wrong. Don't think more of yourself than of your brothers. Don't think, oh, I'm better than, 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 than sister so-and-so. I happen to see her. She just dropped in $5 on the offering, and I gave her 50 Oh, I'm better than, I'm better than Brother Mike because I'm, uh, I don't have the issues that he has. Or I'm better than Minister Carmen because, you know, I came to church on time today, and, you know, she didn't. We have to think less of ourselves, amen? We will not rely on our ancestry, our financial reserves, or education for those things are meaningless before God. To be poor in spirit is not to lack courage, but to acknowledge spiritual bankruptcy. That you have nothing in your spirit of worth, amen? It confesses one's unworthiness before God and utter dependence on him. That's from Carson's expository Bible commentary. Could you understand that, that you are, that we're unworthy of God? Does everybody grasp the concept, I'm unworthy of God? Do you know what that means? Everybody knows what that means. We're all clear there. We don't, none of us deserve him. None of us deserve him, amen? To be poor in spirit is to have a humble opinion of ourselves, to be sensible that we are sinners and have no righteousness of our own, to be willing to be saved only by the rich grace and mercy of God, to be willing to be where God places us, to bear what he lays on us, to go where he bids us to go, and to die when he commands us to die, to be willing to be in his hands and to feel that we deserve no favor from him. It is opposed to pride, vanity, and ambition is what the definition of poor in spirit is. To be poor in spirit is to be vacant of self and waiting for God. My goodness. To have no confidence in the flesh. To be emptied of self-reliance. To be conscious of absolute insufficiency. To be thankfully dependent on the life energy of your living God. That is poverty of spirit. And it has been the characteristic of some of the noblest, richest, most glorious natures that have ever trodden this world. You have to understand that some of the most richest, greatest people are the ones who exhibit these characteristics. There must be an emptying of our lives before there can be a filling. We must become poor in spirit before we can become rich in God's blessings. We must have a recognition of our unworthiness before God, before we can accept his salvation, amen. In the absence of human pride and self-assurance, we bow before God and humbly submit to his will. You can trace back everything in the, in the Bible to one thing, and that's obeying God's will. Obeying God's will, amen? To be poor in spirit, emptied of yourself. He says, uh, blessed, are those, uh, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is the consequence of being poor in spirit, not a reward for it. It's not something we can earn. You can never earn heaven, amen? The poor in spirit are those who feel a deep sense of spiritual destitution and comprehend their nothingness before God. The kingdom of heaven is theirs because they seek it, and therefore they find it and they live in it. To this virtue is opposed the pride of whether 
we talked about the Pharisees and the Sadducees, which they thought it was by their deeds and how they lived that they would inherit God and the heaven, amen? You have to understand that God desires for you to be blessed in the, in the first place. God desires for you to, to live a, a, a life of happiness. God desires for you to be uh, free in your spirit, but God desires for you to be humble. God desires for you to lead others to the cross, not to draw them away. God desires, um, in, this, in this preaching, Jesus went on and he talked about adultery, divorce. This is where he talked about being the salt and light of the earth. And he goes on, it's one of the most amazing things. And he started everything by saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You can't get into heaven with your head swelled up about yourself. You can't get into heaven thinking that you are just the hottest thing, the coolest thing. You can't get to heaven, you know, put away all the sinful things. We're talking about you dealing with yourself now. You cannot get to heaven thinking highly of yourself. Amen? Humility really is the first step towards entering um, the kingdom of God. For until we submit our will to the will of Christ, we can never enter heaven. We come to Christ hopeless, helpless, naked, and vile. And that comes from Ephesians 2 verse 12. In our Lord's day, meaning in Jesus' time, it was not the Pharisees who entered the kingdom of heaven who thought they were rich, so rich in merit that they thanked God for their attainments. It wasn't the zealots who dreamed of establishing a, a kingdom of God through war. It, wasn't, it, it was actually, if you read the Bible, you will realize it was the publicans, the prostitutes, the rejects of the human society who knew they were so poor they could offer nothing and achieve nothing. They all, could, all they could do was cry out to God for mercy, and he heard their cry. There's an old hymn, I don't know if you ever heard it, it's called The Rock of Ages, and it says, In my hand no price I bring, simply to the cross I cling. There's nothing that you can actually bring to God that makes you worthy. We getting that point tonight? Nothing you can bring to God that can make you worthy. You are always going to feel like you're not worthy. I don't mean to put you out there, but I remember when Mike first came to the church, he took me to the side and said, Pastor, I just don't feel worthy. I said, good, you're not. <laughs> Isn't that what I told you? I said, you're never going to be worthy. I'm not worthy. But that's where grace kicks in. Grace is like Aflac. When you're out of work, you just pays your bill. Okay. All right, I'll leave that one alone. <laughs> we can become humble when we take our eyes off ourselves and fix them on the cross of Jesus Christ. That's Galatians 2, verse 20. Then we can truly say, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Philippians 1, verse 21. Becoming poor in spirit allows God to turn, to turn us into his own special people. Um, we come to God empty and helpless, but with contrite and humble spirit, we are then allowed to dwell with God. The kingdom of God can be yours when you realize your own utter helplessness without God and learn to trust and obey God's word. That word blessed um, in Greek and in Latin, I, I, it means to, uh, let me get that here again. I, I skipped that part. I don't know why I skipped it, but I did. The Greek word for blessing, um, blessed was not to mean happy. I love this that it says this. The word happy, do you know where that word comes from? It comes from the root word hap. Anybody know what the word hap means in English? H-A-P? It means by chance. Do you think it's God's desire for you to experience joy by chance? 
oh, I'm happy. That's a horrible thing to be then because it's by chance because tomorrow you might not be so happy. Isn't that funny? Sometimes you're happy and sometimes you're not. Why? Because happiness is temporary. It's by chance. When being blessed means a constant joy of the Lord. Amen? Being blessed by God means to experience the hope and the joy of independence of outward circumstances. I don't know if that was too deep for some of y'all. Check that out again. I'll say it again. Uh, to be blessed is to have hope and joy in the independence of your outward circumstances. Meaning no matter what's going outside, no matter what's taking place in your life, no matter how bad your workday was, Kim, no matter how bad, you know, you didn't want to go home that day, no matter how bad everything in your life seemed that day, true blessed joy means that none of that matters and you're still going to be happy. Our happiness is not conditioned, anchored, or settled upon some material thing or some relationship. When somebody, you know, goes into a breakup, I'm going to kill myself. What for? Why? Is your joy in that person or is it in God? Are you with me? You understanding that so far? Um, the Greek word makurios is the word blessed. It describes that joy which has its secret within itself, that joy which is, a, is um, serene and untouchable and self-contained, that joy which is completely independent of all the chances and changes of life, which directly disputes the word to be happy. To be blessed is to be way beyond happy. It takes happy, smashes it uh, into little pieces, eats it up, throws it into a shredder, and then that's it. Happiness does not matter when you are blessed. Amen? Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. That's like saying, oh, blessed are those who cry, they'll get to wipe their eyes. You get what I'm saying? Blessed are those who get into a car accident because they're going to be able to collect insurance checks. Who said amen? You would. As we examined the first beatitude, we saw that uh, to be poor in spirit means to be empty of ourselves. Amen? So that God can be able to fill us. What does it mean to mourn? Um, Matthew, um, Matthew verse, chapter 5, verse 4, the, the Greek word for mourn is pentio. It's the strongest word for mourning in the Greek New Testament. The basic meaning of the word is to lament, bewail, and to mourn. In Jewish literature, the word often means to engage in mourning for one who is dead, ordinarily with traditional rites. The word is used in the Septuagint, which is a different translation of the Bible, to describe Jacob's grief when he thought Joseph was dead. Amen. So it's describing here when Jesus is talking, the word he's using, it might be different to us, but to them it was a normal everyday word. That's why the language is so important. He was describing a death. Blessed are those who mourn. There are various interpretations for the cause um, of mourning in this verse. Some think it's mourning due to one's own bitterness experience in their own lives. Others think it's a mourning over the sad circumstances in the world. But it's my understanding that this passage speaks of one who is mourning over their own sins and unworthiness before God. Because first you're talking about blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for those are the kingdom of heaven. So now he's realized that he's worthless. So blessed are those who mourn that they are poor in spirit. Because then they shall be comforted. You can't read this piece by piece and I read a verse in the Bible saying it was great. Sometimes it works. Other times you're going you're gonna to miss the blessing. There's sometimes there's a, there's a blessing attached to a commandment. Honor your mother and your father. 
Why? Yeah, but what's the original? That it may be well with you and that you may have long life. So it says that this is the first scripture with the, with the first commandment with a promise on it. Many times we would have said, I'm your mother and your father. And like, what for? I don't want to. So that it may go well with thee and that you may have long life. So you have to sometimes be able to read, why are they mourning? Because they're poor in spirit. Amen? Um, the message of Christ was the message of repentance. We can't truly repent without godly sorrow. Uh, we've witnessed people come forward at the end of worship services to publicly repent of some sin, but can't understand how some people do this with a smile on their face. Isn't that weird? Sorry, Lord. <laughs> I don't, that, you can't, you can't that, that's not godly sorrow. Is that, you have to question. And then you have some people who answer every altar call. Is that wrong? Absolutely not. But at some point, at some point, there's got to be a maturing. There's got to be a maturing in your spirit. You can't keep dealing with the same old things. You can't keep dealing with the same old devils, demons, and spirits and, des and desire God to have a different outcome in your life. Amen? Um, the smiling face is just that they have not truly grasped what godly sorrow is all about. Blessed are they that mourn. That is those who, feeling their spiritual poverty, mourn after God, lamenting, the, crying out to God, rather, the iniquity that separated them from the fountain of his, of his blessings. Everyone flies from sorrow and seeks after joy, and yet true joy must necessarily be the fruit of sorrow. What it's saying there is that you can never experience joy or understand what joy is until you've experienced sorrow. They say, um... Uh, necessity is the mother of invention. Ever heard that before? That if it wasn't for the necessity to have warmth, they would have never discovered fire. If there wasn't the necessity to find a better way to travel, nobody would have ever invented the wheel. If there wasn't a necessity to sit more comfortably, you would have never created a chair or to move more effortlessly. You would have never created a car. If there wasn't a necessity for comfort, inventions of your shoes would have never came about. Necessity is the mother of all inventions. So, sorrow is the mother of joy. Without experiencing tough times, you would never understand what joy is. Because right now, you may think you're happy, but uh, I guarantee you, God can do something to make you ten times happier. We're not talking about just fake joy, fake blessed. It's just, I'm happy, I'm, I'm talking about true, genuine joy of the Lord. Amen? The blessing is not upon all that mourn, but upon those who mourn in reference to the sins. They shall be comforted by the discovery and appropriation of God's pardon. But all mourning is traced directly and or indirectly to sin. We may take it, therefore, that in the widest sense, the beatitude of this one speaking, blessed are those who mourn, it covers all those who are led by mourning to a discerning of sin, and who deplore its effects and consequences in the world. How many of you ever sat down, thought about your sin, and really got sad? How many of you ever sat down, thought about your sin, and got sad? I've been there. I was like, man, I wish I could have taken that back. I remember before I was a pastor, I'll, I'll be really transparent tonight, that um, 
that I would you go and do your thing and like you know you worry for a whole month if you get what I'm saying, like oh Lord. Then everybody's saved. Oh God, please help me, Lord. But yeah, you're laughing too hard back there. <laughs> Guys can understand that you you don't understand that fear. That's the fear of God. I'm just kidding. But when you think about it after the fact, it was like where was all this thought process before that? Where was all this contemplation before that? Where was all this conviction before? But he says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who realize their sin, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who, first of all, realize their unworthiness before God. They're, they're poor in spirit, and now they're being comforted because they realize and now they mourn and say, God, I don't want to live this way. He's not sitting there saying, oh, be like this all the time. He's saying, to have that moment in your life where you can say, wow, I've got to change some things around. I've got to rearrange some issues in my life because what I'm doing right now isn't right before God, amen? And he says, then you shall be comforted. Anybody ever found yourself in the midst of one of those, like just you're down that day, you're depressed, and nothing nobody says or does can help you. Why? Because you're not being comforted. He says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. 90% of the time, why do we mourn? Because of a loss of something, because of our sin, or because of the effect someone else's sin has had on us. That's why we mourn. You follow me there? I don't have to revisit that. Amen? This mourning must not be mistaken for loosely for that feeling which is wrung from um, pressure of life. It's really talking about sins here. Um, evidently, it is that entire feeling which the sense of our spiritual poverty begets, and so that the second beatitude is but the complement of the first beatitude. The one is the intellectual, the other the emotional aspect of the same exact thing. The poverty of spirit that says, I am undone, and it is the mourning which this causes that makes it to break forth in the form of crying out to God. So, Blessed are the poor in spirit, this is the kingdom of heaven. He says this, right? He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who can realize they don't deserve God's love and grace. And then he goes on, part two. Blessed are those who now mourn because they realize they're not worthy. He's going to comfort them and they shall be given the kingdom of heaven. You understanding this a little better? Blessed are those who mourn. Jesus was filled with sorrow over sins, not his own, but of ours, others. The Bible speaks of that in Isaiah 53, um, chapter, uh, verse 3 and 4. He wept at the grave of Lazarus, but not for Lazarus. He wept over the city of Jerusalem. Uh, speaking of his former life, the apostle Paul said, O wretched man that I am, uh, who will deliver me from this body of death in Romans 7, 24? He's more specific in his epistles when he uses such words as sober, reverent, and temperate in Titus 2, 2. Mourning over sin and consequences is something that naturally follows one being poor in their spirit. The comfort, the mourning ends in comfort only when the person is led to Christ. The gospel of Christ is the only source of true comfort for those who are afflicted by sin. Religion, according to the Bible, is neither a set of intellectual convictions nor a bundle of emotional feelings, but it's a compound of both. It's your feelings and just the, the intellect of God, amen, that all join in together. Mourning for sin drives you to God, just as Paul's infirmities made him realize how much he needed God. 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10. Put that up for me. 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10. 
David, mourning over his sin with Bathsheba, drove him to seek God with a broken and contrite heart. As for to this end also did I write that I might know the proof of you, whether ye be obedient in all things, to whom ye forgive anything. I forgive also, for if I forgave anything, to whom I forgave it, for your sakes forgive in the person of Christ. If he can forgive it, he will. And if God can forgive it, then we should forgive. Amen? So, how many of you can attest to the fact that sometimes your sin has drawn you closer to God? It's the recognition of your sin, the realization. And I, I, I feel bad for, I feel bad, and I, I don't say this lightly, and I don't mean to say this with um, any mal intent. I feel bad for some of us who've been in church longer. I feel bad for Yvette and Yvonne and, and Elias sometimes and Carmen and Danielle. You know why I feel bad? Because they've been doing this so long, their entire life, where some of us are just new to this now. And it's like, oh, my God. And we have to literally struggle with the fact that, okay, this is sin and I know it is. It's not as, it's, it's as if we've, a drug addict, after a while, it wears off the effect on them. Am I lying, guys? You know what I'm talking about. It's that much harder to make that commitment to God every day. It's that much harder. And so as you grow in your Christianity, it's not going to get any easier. It's not like you're going to be able to walk around one day and just say, no to sin here, no to sin there. I'm not going to sin here. I'm not going to sin there. It will find you. It will ensnare you. It will find a way to make you fall. It does not get easier. It's not like when somebody dies, they say it's going to get easier with time. That's a lie, too. It does not get easier. But there is no promise that it ever gets easy. There's just a promise that you would never be alone when you're going through it. Many times our sins will, <clears throat> excuse me, our sins will drive us to God. David, like I said, his mourning over his sin with Bathsheba drove him to seek God. Uh, the Bible describes it as he had a broken and contrite heart. When that song we have, um, we have all the time, we sing it, Create in me a clean heart and renew a right spirit in me. Cast me not away from your presence, O Lord. Take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. David's crying out to God and saying, God, I've messed up. I'm sinful, God. And the Bible describes David as a man after God's own heart. And he was yet a sinner, just like you. He was a murderer and an adulterer. You think of Paul, and Paul said, I'm a sinner of all sinners. I'm the chief of sinners. These great men of God who we look to, we read their scriptures daily that God told them to write, and yet they were sinners just like us. There's no level of perfection that you can reach, but there needs to be a level of perfection that we strive for, amen? So blessed are the poor in spirit. Why? So blessed are those who mourn. Why? Because they will be comforted. I don't know about you, but I desire comfort in my life. I desire that God will be able to comfort me in times that I'm hurting, comfort me in times that I'm really going through some stuff. Amen? I want to cut it right there. I'll let you guys go early today. Next week, I'm going to be covering meekness, amen, and righteousness. Meekness, read it out. You check it out in all the different versions of the Bible you have in your cell phones and whatnot. It's going to be really, really cool. I'm expecting some great things. Also, coming up, keep it in prayer. Um, we're going to be having the entire church do a series the men did, and it's called Undercover. And oh my goodness, um, 
I know Mike, that was your first men's meeting with us, was it? With the, with the video, though? And uh, a second one? And uh, those videos, man. But I have, I, I upgraded the DVD, don't worry. And uh, we're going to do it as a church. It's going to be very, it's going to provoke you guys to be like, wow, and to talk about some concurrent issues in the church. And I promise you that if you put your mind to it and you, you just in, listen to these videos and watch them with us, and if each preaching is like, what, 22 minutes long, something like that, 23 minutes long, and then they have a discussion afterwards, it will completely revolutionize the way you look at your bosses, the way you look at your, your leadership in church, the pastor, the way you look at your parents, everybody. It would change the way you look at your husbands, women, or the way you look at your wives, husbands. It is an amazing, amazing series, and I'm expecting to, to um, some really awesome things. It's by John Bevere. It's just fantastic, and we're going to have a great time with it. Amen? Lori, do you have any announcements that you need to make? You're good? You look tired, Dito. The anniversary, Saturday, 6 o'clock. Even though I told all my pastor friends 7, and she says 6. Who wants a dinner at 6? <sighs> anybody, got, anybody heard about my phone bill? My phone bill was $3,545. That was my phone bill. No, it wasn't fake. It was not fake. I can show you on my phone it's not fake. And I had, they went through every message I had. I guess Judy messed up my plan. And, uh, and uh, um, it, was, it was crazy. And they, they fixed it. It was 160 after they fixed it. I knew something was wrong when I opened my front door and I saw this T-Mobile package there. I'm like, what's this? I opened it up. I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm going to turn this off. Are we done? Let me turn this off. I said, 